today we are going to continue in a four-part series from the book of Romans. You probably didn't realize that we're at our second installment of a four-part series because I took a week off when I was going to be preaching this sermon to have COVID. And then we, I intended to have a, uh, a different sermon for last week uh, than this series where you're just going to take a pause in the middle of it. Cast your mind back to November 5th, and you may recall me doing a sermon from the very first seven verses of Romans. The sermon was called, Saved, Servant, Set Apart, in which Paul introduced himself to the Church of Rome, and he points out uh, that uh, he became Christ's slave or servant, which he is proud to be. This was because he was first saved by the gospel. Only then does he use the title of apostle as one who had been set apart for the spreading of the gospel, and he invites them to partner with him in this mission. It was very upbeat, and he starts the letter off, you know, just everything is great, and he's so glad to, to contact them, and he's hopeful to come see them, and um, just everything's all positive. Today, we're going to be a ways further down in the same chapter that we were that week. However, the message has changed drastically. But I want us to see why. Before we get into this, I want you to understand two things. Especially for those of you who may be listening or watching online either right now or later on when this is posted and you don't really know this church. First, I want you to understand that after we look at this passage, we're going to take a moment to take a look at the context that leads into this passage. We're going to do that in a few minutes. And second, I want you to understand that this sermon is a part of a series. It's really important that you come back or tune in for next week's sermon also. Do not take today's sermon without also listening to next week's sermon, which is the context that comes after this passage. I would love to have all three, the passage, the lead-in context, and the follow-up context in one sermon, but we would then be here for an hour and a half, and none of you would stay for that long. If you look at our um, bulletins today, you'll see that the title of this sermon is, well, that escalated quickly, which is what I chose because of the positive, up, up, upbeat part of the first part of Romans compared to the part that we're about to dive into. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, knew, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now you probably understand why this sermon is titled the way it is. Just a few verses ago, everything was hunky-dory and glad, and boy, is he excited to meet them. And then, wham! God's wrath on sinful people. This is a very important section because it does, in fact, teach us a lot of things about what God says are evil and sinful actions. This is very important to us because popular culture tries diligently to say otherwise. I saw a video clip. I was going to try and just uh, get it and use it and show it to you, but it's only like uh, 22 seconds long, and um, it's just easier to tell it to you. One of these, one of these super hip, ultra modern uh, preacher guys who's, I don't know, he looks like he's maybe 30 uh, in, in the video, and he is up in front of a a really modern, hip church, and he is trying to preach that homosexuality is not bad. 
In fact, he says, right when he says, in fact, the homosexual community has got a few things to teach the church. Right then, lightning strikes, there's a huge boom, and all the power goes out in the church. And as he's standing there, in the glow of his uh, Apple computer, he says, that should not be seen as a sign from God against what I'm preaching. And everyone burst into laughter. And like 40 different conservative preachers have, uh, have done reviews of this and said, uh, yes, yes, actually, it probably should be seen in that way. There are a very limited number of options as to what would possess a person who claims to be a teacher of the gospel to say that that is okay. The first one would be just outright ignorance. However, since anyone who has ever read the New Testament would be aware that it says plenty about how that is a sin, not just here, but probably in about nine different places. It's hard to believe that someone could be a preacher of the gospel and be ignorant about what Scripture says. The second possibility is that they just don't care about what the Bible and all of it uh, in there says, and they are betting that the people in the audience are biblically illiterate and that they are completely ignorant of what the Bible actually says, and they therefore just lie through their teeth. This is possible. I have seen some TV preachers say some mind-bogglingly unbiblical things, and the crowd just eats it up. And I think that that is due to biblical ignorance on the part of the people listening. Third, and I think probably the most likely in my opinion, the reason that they may say something like that, is that they've gone down the road of all the liberal preachers in all the liberal churches for the last 150 years who directly contradict the clear teachings of Scripture which have been nearly universally accepted and understood for the 1,850 years that came before this type of thinking. And it goes something along a version of this. Well, that's what it says, but that isn't actually what it means. In fact, it means 180 degrees the opposite of what it clearly says, it's just been put that way because oppressive straight white males are enslaving the whole world and have been for all eternity. This passage is saying that God's wrath is being revealed and will continue to into eternity against ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth. He says that anyone can see the attributes of God all around us because we live in and as a part of God's creation. 
as a thinking human being, even one who is quite young or not extremely smart, you can't look at a painting and not inherently know that there was a painter. There may be some disagreements as to how the painter painted, but you know there was at some point someone who painted, because right there is the painting. You cannot live in creation and take any time whatsoever to examine your surroundings, the plants, the animals, the people, the way they all interact, and not know that there was a creator. People may disagree about specifics, but only those who, as the passage says, suppress the truth, can deny that something created all of this. Therefore it says that those who choose wickedness are without excuse because they willingly deny what is clear, that there is a creator, and that whomever that is is clearly so much above our power that they deserve our honor. Because of this, because of their willing denial that there is a creator, God gave them over to their own wickedness. In other words, because they chose to go against God, he stopped calling out to them. He let them be who and what the most wicked thoughts in their minds desired to be. Their depravity took over. At this point, it says that where their depravity goes, when not counteracted by either a desire to follow God nor God intervening to counteract it, is to go to vile, wicked, sinful sexuality. Satan is always right there, tempting each of us with this and many other forms of wickedness. But it can and is countermanded by God's grace and our desire to fight against it as all sin is. Now what does it mean when it says in verse 25 that they worshipped the creature rather than the creator? Well, verse 23 tends to guide our minds to idols of false gods. And that's true. Pagans then and today worship false gods and have idols, etc. However, that concept is hardly applicable to most modern Western people. Chances are you're not going to go into some Midwest town and find people bowing down in their living rooms to little idol statues. Or is it? When it says that they worship images resembling man and animals, need that be literal pagan idol worship? 
could it not just as easily apply to humanists and eco-extremists? Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and, and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, all other sin is out, outside oneself. The NIV, instead of saying their God is their belly, it says their God is their stomach. It means that what they hold out as the most important things in life are their physical cravings. Sounds an awful lot like modern hedonism to me. Actually, there's nothing modern about hedonism. The Romans and the Greeks... They were just as guilty of being people enslaved to their desires and passions and indulging them as brutishly as the worst people in our culture today. Remember when I said that I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said I can lovingly, very strongly disagree with some of my colleagues with whom I went to school because they are using a terrible interpretation of what some passages mean. Do you remember me saying something along those lines two weeks ago or maybe it was last week? The reason for that is because they are, in my opinion, and the overwhelming amount of Christians throughout history's opinion, they are simply mistaken about how to understand passage of scripture. It doesn't rise to the point of being anything salvific unless maybe they're deliberately teaching falsehoods which they know to be falsehoods. If somebody looks at this passage and understands it in a particular way that virtually all of history of Christianity says, no, that's not really how that goes. In most cases, all they are is just mistaken. It's not going to separate them from God. But when people subvert the truth about what, call, what God calls a shameful, dishonorable, and unnatural and debased sin, which ought not to be done, and they claim that the Bible doesn't ever say anything about that, that's wickedness. That's not just mistake. That's wickedness. That's heresy. And at the end of the passage, it points out that not only is it a sin to practice these things, but it's wrong to give approval to those who do. Heresy is where you deviate from the truth to the point of no longer being qualified as Christianity. 
If you teach a doctrine that is so directly against the gospel of Jesus Christ, at that point it is no longer Christianity. It is heresy. To lie to people and tell them that sin is not sin and that God doesn't have a problem with it, that's not Christianity. I don't know what it is, but it's something else. It's heresy. And here's why this is so important. Why I get so worked up about these things. You cannot repent and be forgiven from a sin which you first adamantly deny is a sin, despite God being quite clear on the topic. And secondly, that you vehemently refuse to repent of and even make an attempt at correction from because you deny that it's wrong. To call yourself a Christian and deliberately mislead people about sin because you have a political agenda or you are simply trying to please a group of people or you just want to have a gimmick to fill your church and its bank account, you are a heretic and a false teacher. When I started this sermon, however, you may recall that I advised people to wait to see it in its proper context. Well, here's the context. First of all, after it talks about the wickedness of homosexual practices, guess what? It lists off a whole bunch of other sinful behavior, including gossip, envy, which is being jealous of other people, slander, being haughty, which I would uh, translate as stuck up, arrogant narcissism. Being disobedient to parents, yeah, that's listed right there along with those other things. And oh, deceit, also known as lying. All of these, it lists right alongside with those other things that get us so worked up. Right alongside also some things that virtually everybody would agree are pretty, really bad things like murder, strife, being heartless and ruthless. There's a whole big spectrum of the things that it's listed there along with those sexual sins. So what should we discern from all of this? Is practicing homosexuality a sin? Absolutely. And any Christian who says otherwise is being deceitful. But so are all those other things, sins. This passage is used as one of several to show that homosexuality is not acceptable and it's okay to use it that way. But we should be pretty careful about condemning it 
while practicing some of those other things listed. That's the context within this passage. Now let's take a look at the context that leads up to this passage. Verses uh, 8 through 15 talk about how glad Paul is to be, hopefully, coming to see the Christians in Rome and that they will help him out to go see others because he loves to teach the gospel to those who have not heard it. That's the context leading into this. And then he directly says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He wants to go out and preach the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet because he wants to save them from this ungodliness that they have turned themselves over to because they have rejected the natural evidence of God. He's basically saying, look, there are pagans out there who are dying and going to hell because they're living these sort of lives I want to go share the gospel with them. I love to share the gospel because it is the truth about the salvation of God. That's why our main passage that we read today starts out with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. They rejected the natural evidence of God. And so they are futile in their wicked debasedness. He desires to save them from this by taking the gospel to them so that they might find forgiveness from God. That is the context of where he's listing off this holy cow, did that get out of hand quickly? Wow! Man, from, hey, I love you guys, to, wow, the ungodliness of man and the wrath of God. That is why we find this passage about homosexual practices and all those other sins. Not so that we can hate the people that are doing them so that we can try to save them by bringing them to the knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ so that we can teach them that there is a God who no matter how far they have gone, no matter how bad they have become, murderers, people who disobey their parents, things listed right there side by side. All those other things, no matter how wicked 
someone has become. There is a loving God who is standing right there waiting for them to turn and ask Him for forgiveness. And He promises that He will give that forgiveness. Which is why He sent His Son to die on the cross to purchase us back from the slavery we sold ourselves into. That is the context of where this passage is. Not, oh, I'm going to point my finger at those terrible, awful people. Because guess what? We're all those terrible, awful people. The only difference is we've heard the gospel of Christ and accepted it, and other people have yet to. And the whole purpose is that we go out and share it with them so that they can turn from that have their hearts cleansed and be forgiven. If you have, please don't wait another day. Come as we stand.